You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 3rd of July 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. I just spoke with the president-elect of Mexico. We had a great conversation, about a half an hour long. Uh, We talked about border security, we talked about trade, we talked about NAFTA, we talked about uh, a separate deal, just uh, Mexico and the United States. We had a lot of good conversation. Well, let's see how long that lasts. Donald Trump welcomes his new Mexican counterpart. My guests Mary Dejewski and Victor Bulma-Thomas will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including Russia's hosting of the World Cup. Might it not have been a terrible idea after all? Uganda's new social media tax, an idea whose time has come. And the reason why some good news stories grip the globe's attention. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. So, welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Mary Dijewski, columnist for The Independent and The Guardian, and Victor Bulma-Thomas, Associate Fellow in the Americas Programme at Chatham House. Welcome both. And we will start in Russia, not merely hosting the World Cup, but still in the World Cup, pending Saturday's quarterfinal against Croatia. There were, of course, arguments against Russia being permitted to stage the event, mostly pertaining to the country being an oppressive kleptocracy which has invaded at least two neighbours in recent years and meddled to an extent to be established in various elections and referenda abroad to say nothing of a shabby history of pharmacological chicanery where sports are concerned. But there was an optimistic take that exposure to incoming visitors and international scrutiny might make Russia the better for the experience. Um, Mary, a similar optimism was floated before the Winter Olympics in Sochi in 2014, um, shortly before Russia invaded Ukraine. Uh, Is it being perhaps overly optimistic to suggest this World Cup will be transformative? I think, um, I mean, you can look at this both ways, and I would say on the one hand, on the other hand. (laughs) I think that Sochi was, in a way a bit different because it was quite an artificial atmosphere. It was a brand new resort, completely developed for the occasion. um, And it was a single place with incredible security. Um, And Russians would say with enormous resentment that there was a sort of um, anti-Russian campaign beforehand that was set out to trash the event even before they'd started. Um, I think the World Cup in some ways is very, very different um, because it's scattered all over different places. Um, And we've seen the effect that the World Cup had, let's say, on Germany in 2006. Um, It did have a transformative effect on sort of national feeling and optimism it's something that I think has never really completely gone away. You, you don't think this is possibly closer to the Olympics in Germany in 1936? I think that is such a totally wrong comparison um, as to be... Um, well, of course, given that um, one of the most recent people to make it was our Foreign Secretary, um, we should probably say even less about it. Um, but I think that um, what you've had, in a way, in Russia 
it was quite a risk for the Kremlin um, to have um, so many um, of its cities and their inhabitants exposed to um, foreigners, undiluted foreigners, um, for a couple of weeks in some cities where they hardly ever see foreigners. Um, it was a huge risk, but I think so far um, in the Kremlin, they'll feel that it's paid off because, as it were, human-to-human contact is sending people away so far with the idea that Russia is actually a much happier, more livable place than they imagined when they came. Uh, Victor, has it, do you think, allowed Russia to present a positive image of itself to the world? And I guess the rider to that question is, should it have? Russia had every right to compete for the World Cup and uh, its uh, record uh, in this particular tournament uh, so far has been very good. As a sporting event, it could go down as one of the best World Cups ever. In in terms of the football, certainly it it has been riotously entertaining. Uh, And the fact that, you know, you've had uh, goals scored in every quarter, in every round of 16, which has never happened before. So, you know, that's, that's all very good. Whether it's transformative, I think, doesn't depend so much on the World Cup as such, although I take Mary's point about so many people visiting and coming back with uh, warm feelings towards Russia. I think it's more that the tectonic plates, to use that awful cliche, (laughs) are moving slightly in Russia's favor at the moment. Uh, The partnership with China is real and important and strategic. And we saw that, for example, in the vote in the uh, OPCW last week. It wasn't just China voting with Russia. It was also India and South Africa significantly. Uh, There are now cracks, if you like, in the EU um, uh, sanctions uh, uh, set up against uh, Russia as a result of elections in in uh, Austria and, and Italy and with the Czech president and so on. And the fact that Trump is now going to meet uh, Putin in Helsinki is an indication that Trump no longer feels quite as trapped in Washington on this issue as he has been in the past. So things are moving, and but we shouldn't expect too much because Russia has a long authoritarian tradition going back throughout the whole time of its history as a nation state. So you, you, one has to be realistic about that. Well, in, indeed. So, Mary, quite a few people who've had previous experience of Russia and who are in Russia now, and I have had some previous experience of Russia, not nearly as much as you, although neither of us are in Russia now, uh, have remarked on the, the extraordinary, uh, infor- clearly enforced friendliness among, and I think you can probably agree uncharacteristic friendliness among Russian officialdom. Um, some of those poor guys' faces must literally be cracking as they try to form a smile. Do do you think that's likely to be temporary? Well, this is the enormous question, um, because you've had... um a number of Russian cities across the country, not just Moscow and St. Petersburg, who have really, there have been no holds barred um, for the duration of the World Cup. And so you've had people drinking in the streets, you've had people having what, you know, anywhere would be called riotous assemblies. Um, You've had all sorts of demonstrations of national flags which have verged on the political. Um, Actual photographs of police officers smiling, which is amazing. Exactly. (laughs) And I think what you know, I think one of the real questions is whether um, 
after it's all over, first of all, whether the Russians who enjoyed that atmosphere carry on saying, wouldn't it be wonderful if, and behaving, well, you know, not quite like they did during the World Cup. I mean, you know, even London 2012 sort of calmed down when everybody'd gone. Um, but whether there is something of that relaxed atmosphere that can stay. And of course, the other question is whether law enforcement and the word from the top on security is get back to normal guys, enforce things as they were enforced before, or whether they actually take a slightly less, um, a slightly lighter touch um, approach to law enforcement and security generally. Um, and maybe give the impression of being less afraid of their own population than they were six weeks ago. Um, and if that were to happen, then it could indeed, I think, be transformative of Russia. Final very quick thought on this one, Victor. We are speaking shortly before England take the field against Colombia and may therefore render this point moot. But uh, a lot of uh, high-profile dignitaries made a point of not attending the opening ceremony if England end up in the final. Uh, should Theresa May bite the bullet, as it were, and go to Moscow? Yes, of course. Well, there's a short answer. (laughs) It's a no-brainer as far as I'm concerned. I think she might cop out and send Boris out. It would be a a total insult to the English team and uh, their supporters if she didn't. Okay, well, it it, it may not come up. Uh, We we will know more a couple of hours from now. But in the meantime, let's look now at Mexico, where President-elect André Manuel López Obrador has demonstrated that, whatever else he may prove to be, he is the kind of person who does not believe in putting off difficult and potentially unpleasant tasks, which is to say he has spoken already to his counterpart in Washington, D.C., Donald Trump. Obrador, in common with all other candidates in Mexico's presidential election, damned and abused Trump with both spirit and imagination on the trail, a potentially high-risk strategy given that grudges appear to be the only exception to Trump's famously limited attention span. Um, Victor, what kind of relationship can they really hope to have? Donald Trump has tweeted and said uh, lots of very pleasant, cheerful, affable, friendly things, but um, is that likely to last? Probably not, but at the same time... uh Lopez Obrador, or AMLO, if, if I may call him that for the purposes of this do. interview, uh, his stunning victory, the size of it, means that he's likely to have quite a long honeymoon, both domestically and internationally, much longer than his predecessors, for example. And the other reason why I think uh, it may be some time before the relationship deteriorates is that If there is any one person who is more critical of NAFTA than Donald Trump, it's actually AMLO, (laughs) who has never been a fan of it, has never supported it. In other words, if NAFTA goes pear-shaped, it won't be AMLO who feels particularly upset or betrayed about it. What he wants is development in Mexico in such a way that he can sell it to Trump as reducing the flow of migrants across the border. And that, of course, is something that Donald Trump would be delighted to uh, uh, to support. So you can see why there are ways in which they could work together initially. 
But of course, there are also all sorts of uh, traps down the road where they are likely to uh, fall out. But I don't see that happening um, uh, for some months. Uh, Mary, Trump suggested in his statement today that they had, the pair had spoken about a, a development deal. And, and obviously, this is the ideal solution to any refugee stroke migration issue, that you remove people's reason for wanting to leave their home country in the first place. Uh, is there leaving aside whatever we may think of the personalities involved, the kernel of actually a good idea there. And if there is, how does Trump sell that to his base? Because that will involve massive spending by the United States in Mexico. I think that there is indeed the kernel of an idea there. Um, I think the slight hitch with the idea that um, migration might, might somehow be stalled is that I think at the moment migration actually from Mexico is quite a lot down. The problem is migration through Mexico from points south, indeed. which may not actually be um, under the control of um, the new Mexican government to, to do much about. Um, but I also think, I mean, it's so interesting that um, Trump and Obrador, they spent half an hour on the phone. Um, the development deal seems to have been an eminently sensible idea. There is the question of their sort of agreement on NAFTA. I think also it's maybe um, underestimated um, how sort of centrist and in some ways um, leftist populist um, Donald Trump is. Um, to say that, you know, Obrador comes from the left um, and Trump is a Republican from the right is, <clears throat> and therefore they won't possibly see eye to eye, I think is actually wrong. Um, because when you listen to Trump campaigning and when he addresses crowds, um, he speaks very much as somebody who tries to make common cause with people he would see as the common people. Um, and I think he's not as ideologically on the right as he's often presented, which I think leaves um, other openings for them actually, you know, for two strong characters actually to get on not at all badly. I mean, I think you're right in that I think Trump gets characterised as a conservative because he is the nominal leader of the Republican exactly. Party. But I, I don't think he's ideologically attached to anything except his own uh, advancement and enrichment. And, and on that subject, Victor, is a potential danger to their relationship such as it may be going to be basic domestic politics? Because neither of these two are ever going to lose ground among their base by beating up on the other one, are they? Well, I wouldn't be so sure. Clearly, Trump won't won't lose out if he beats up on Mexico. But I think you had to be careful about AMLO because his supporters, if we take the 53% who voted for him, include a huge number of middle-class people who spend their weekends in Walmart and McDonald's and all the rest of it. And they're very happy with that. I mean, they don't have a problem with American investment in, in, in Mexico. So... Um, there will be a lot of people uh, who would, among those who voted for him, who would be uncomfortable if he started on a very aggressive anti-imperialist, anti-American rhetoric in the way that Chavez used to do in, in Venezuela and, and got a lot of support. So uh, this, I think, is a very different situation. 
just on his uh, domestic agenda, uh, the issue of corruption in Mexico has been, you know, s absolutely at the center of, of what he hopes to do. And I think he can do quite a lot in that area because of his own personal honesty and his commitment and all the rest of it. Where he will have much more trouble is reducing violence in uh, Mexico. And for that, he will need the help of the United States. They have to work on that together. And that may mean some form of gun control across the border, which is anathema, unfortunately, to the US administration. Just a final thought on this before we take a, a quick break, Mary. Um, thinking more widely about, you know, how AMLO will, will tackle Trump, we're about to see again a couple of more demonstrations of, of Donald Trump interacting with uh, his fellow foreign leaders, uh, NATO and Russia summits upcoming. Do, as far as we can tell, uh, Trump's fellow foreign leaders appear to have figured out the way to deal with him yet? Does he just respond to flattery? Are there other tactics? Does anybody seem noticeably more successful than anyone else? Well, I think we, you could probably say that there is one group that is markedly less successful than anybody else, um, which by and large has been the Europeans and the most European of those on the American continent, which is the Canadians. Um, it seems to me that almost everybody else, but starting with starting with Asia, um, the um, Prime Minister of Japan was the first foreign leader to meet Trump, and he's been at least once since, maybe twice. Um, and generally, um, Kim Jong-un being of North Korea being the absolute classic case in point, um, Trump has done very well um, in forging relationships in Asia. OK, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, Mary Dijewski and Victor Bulba-Thomas. Coming up next, has Uganda fixed social media? Russia is a large and unwieldy beast, but in recent decades it's been tamed by President Vladimir Putin, who's deftly tightened his grip on power. To find more about where Russia finds itself today, from its soft power to its economy, watch our animated nation survey, playing now in the film section at monocle.com. You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Mary Dijewski and Victor Bulma-Thomas. And let's look at Uganda, whose government, rather, is presently being yelled at on local social media for imposing attacks on the use of social media. The levy is 200 Ugandan shillings a day, which amounts to about four pence, which sounds trifling enough, but would be a potentially consequential sum to poorer Ugandans. The anger, however, is more rooted in a suspicion, doubtless well-founded, that Uganda's government is actually seeking to stifle criticism. President Yari Museveni, who has been in power since shortly after the earth cooled, has never been known for a welcoming attitude to dissent. But the question is, is there here the basis of actually a good idea? Victor, I'll ask you first, should people be charged to use social media? Specifically, I like the idea of charging people money to post comments under articles in newspapers and magazines. Well, actually, I better like the idea of just abolishing comment sections by law. But if we must have them, would it be worth charging people for them? Well, let me just backtrack a second. Every time governments have tried to introduce a new tax, whether it was income tax in the 19th century or sales tax or value-added tax or a financial transaction tax, there's always been a howl of protests arguing that it's the end of civilization. So 
I start from the principle that you have to look at this with an open mind. You cannot say that taxing social media per se is wrong. So then the second question is, well, What's the motive for it? Now, if the motive is just to stop people um, uh, criticising the government, well, clearly that's not a very good reason. If the motive is to nudge people in the way that we try and do it when we impose taxes on cigarettes or alcohol or what have you, then I don't see really that um, we can um, um, uh, criticise it too harshly on that basis. So I have um, an open mind on this particular one until you can demonstrate to me, as I suspect you would like to do, that the real reason why the government is doing this is that they want to stifle criticism. And I'm not sure that's true. Uh, Mary, what do you think? Would it improve the tone of discourse if people were charged a nominal sum, say five or ten pence, for every idiotic, as in nine, racist comment they wish to post on Twitter or YouTube or similar... Well, I think the real problem is probably the wrong sort of people would be the ones who would decide to afford it. <laughs> so you, 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 may, you may have just you spotted the flaw. You, you wouldn't actually improve the tone of the um, of the conversation. I mean, I was rather taken with the um, with the official reason um, for levying the tax, which was. Um, to um, to fund the um, spreading of broadband and other um, digital possibilities across Uganda, um, which seemed to me to be an eminently sensible idea. Um, but of course, it's hard to get away from the fact at the same time um, that it could be a sort of um, rather gentle, it has to be said, but um, a form of censorship or at least discouragement um, of official criticism. Um, but if you you transferred it, say, um, from um, a less developed country to a developed country, then I would actually be all in favour of having that sort of thing, so long as um, the proceeds from this went either to extending um, broadband and satellite to places that don't have it, um, or that it was um, it was made so that um, the the proceeds went partly to some subsidise the old media, like um, the print that I'm generally so wedded to, um, which is finding it hugely difficult in the age of digital media to survive. Um, So I think if the proceeds were used to either of those purposes um, and not to stop people criticising the powers that be, then I think um, you might have the the core of an idea there. Because, Victor, on the subject of the old school print media, which you were able to contact and occasionally have your views published in, but there was an effective tax on that, wasn't there, in that people had to outlay on a piece of paper and an envelope and a postage stamp and the time necessary to walk to the post office. And that tended to... Well, it it basically meant that every letter you got was from one of two kinds of people, either actually engaged thoughtful people who had something to say or certifiable maniacs who would just send you reams uh, of drivel almost invariably written in green ink, weirdly. I mean, would this be doing any more or less than just returning to that idea that there is a price to be paid for admission to the public discourse? Fair point. And I think the other point to make about any tax is that the secret is to have the broadest possible base and the lowest possible rate. And actually taxing social media fits that quite well. Mary, would you, would you pay to use it? 
Oh, that's uh, that. That's a big question. Well, I think it is because the de- the definition would... of tax, I think, is that thing that everybody thinks other people should pay more of. Yes, well, I would think that other people should pay because I contribute to it to in other <laughs> ways as a prime contributor. So I put my investment in a slightly different way. Okay. Well, finally tonight, uh, a consideration of the potence of good. Uh, for the moment, I think we should say good-ish news. Twelve boys and their football coach who went missing in a cave complex in Thailand have been found nine days after disappearing, all alive and all well, all things considered. While it has been possible to get food and medical treatment to the air pocket in which the group has sheltered, it is going to be rather more of a production to get them out. As things stand, they will need to either be taught to dive, an idea complicated by the fact that some of the boys cannot even swim, or wait up to four months for the seasonal waters to recede. Um, Victor, it is an absolutely, uh, you know, compelling, captivating story. And given where everybody thought this was tending, it is obviously outstanding that they have been found alive. And it is an act of considerable uh, enterprise and daring do by the the, uh, rescue workers involved that has actually found them. But if you're thinking about this story with a news editor's hat on, do you you call it a, a good news story yet? Uh, yes, I think so. Um, as it happens, my daughter-in-law is from Thailand, and so I took the opportunity of talking to her about this story. And it's this happened in an area uh, where I have been with um, my my family, uh, with her and my grandchildren. And she assures me, and indeed she she said this when we were there before, that no one in their right mind, would go into a cave during the rainy season for precisely the reason that this is happening. I, I am starting to think that the, the football coach who took them in there might be well advised to stay there. I, I suspect the, the, the parents are not going to be terrifically pleased with him. But I, would, but the, the, I think that the good news story is this, that uh, what uh, my daughter-in-law was telling me is that already today there's been a massive amount of collective action because everyone has decided the best way to deal with this is to pump out the water. So all the locals are contributing in ways of trying to get the, uh, the, the water level down in a way that these children can get out without having to wait three months or learning to swim. And I've seen this collective action. I was in Thailand when there were massive floods a few years ago. And the collective action is really impressive. And I think that this, in the end, may be the good news story that we were talking about. Well, we can only hope so. But, Mary, it is... There is something about, and there's been a few similar stories in recent years, I guess. One thinks of the rescue of Chilean miners, and there was a, a similar story with, with fewer miners and I think slightly less uh, suspense and excavation in Australia as well. There's there's something about stories like this, isn't there, that become that unfolding narrative? Yes, and I think it's one of the... Um it's one of the benefits, if you like, of um, 24-hour satellite television that we wouldn't have been able to follow these sort of stories before um, satellite television around the world. Now that you can have live coverage from these places, you know, I remember the, the, the live coverage around the world of the rescue of the Chilean miners. Um, and you can imagine something similar happening if if, if and when um, these, these boys are rescued. Um, you know, it'll be shown 
shown live around the world and it'll become a sort of global phenomenon if it's not already. Um, and there, there is, I think, probably, you know, on all sides of the world, there's that sort of very temporary feeling um, of sort of goodwill towards a globalised world that it's somehow we're all in this together, though obviously we're not. Um, and I think that, um, yes, when they found them, um, that just seemed completely miraculous because I think probably most people who'd even half followed that story imagined that it was all going to end with in in disaster. Um, but of course, even now, um, success isn't completely guaranteed. You know that's the problem because so many things, even if they do manage to drain the um, the various bits of the caves as necessary, even so, um, there are so many risks that stand between where we are. Are now and getting everybody out. So, I mean, Victor, that collective enterprise you mentioned and that that appetite for it. Does it strike you that that's actually a, a fairly universal quality? That in 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 most countries, if a similar situation replicated itself, then more people than not would be willing to pitch in to help. No, I don't. I think uh, I, I mean I've been to a hundred countries and I've never seen the uh, collective response uh, that I saw in Thailand a few years ago. So I think it's something about Thai history, maybe the fact that it was never a, a European colony has, has, has helped in this respect. Uh, it was very impressive, and I have not seen that in other countries that I visited in similar situations. What do you think, Mary? Is, is, does it vary? Because I, 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 I mean, suppose, I, 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 mean I, I come I from. I would differ slightly because um, I remember w when there've been various um, floods, really bad floods in Germany, especially, um, and you've had lots and lots of young Germans volunteering um, to try to reduce the water level and to pass sandbags by hand. Huge numbers of people volunteering, um, and. And if you sort of remember back to to Britain, way back when we had mines and mining accidents, and you remember everybody standing, at the, everybody from the whole mining community um, at the top of the mine waiting for the news. Now, that's maybe slightly slightly different because there wasn't anything that anybody could really do about it but there was certainly a, a, a sort of social cohesion there um, which belonged to that particular activity in those particular places now maybe we're losing that I don't know well, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Mary Dijewski and Victor Bulma-Thomas, thank you for joining us at Midori House. The show was produced by Fernando Augusto Pacheco, researched by Lumichi Okamoto, Paula Schulzer, and our studio manager was Christy Evans. Music next at 1900. It's Monocle on Design with Josh Fennett. There's more on the day's main stories on The Daily at 2200. I'll be back with Midori House at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. For now, I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you for listening. <laughs> 